I'm Will Leviste. He's Eric Laville. You're tuned into Leviste and Claville, telling it to you straight the way it is from a black male perspective. Let's get right to it. Today's show, COVID-19 and Black America. Now, the COVID-19 global pandemic has killed many worldwide, and Black people and brown people and indigenous people have been dying at much higher rates. Um, now we have a vaccine, and the vaccine issue is one where even uh, folks in our community have a legitimate concern, a legitimate distrust of government and health institutions. So there's a wariness about taking a vaccine. So Black health professionals from the National Academy of Health just recently wrote an op-ed in the New York Times, and we're honored to have Dr. Thomas Levice, who's a dean of the School of Public Health at Tulane University. And yeah, you'll recognize the last names are similar. So um, I'm the baby brother, but Dr. Levice, <laughs> appreciate having you here with the uh, Claville, along with uh, Claville on our show. Thank you. Thank you for having me on your show. You may be the baby brother, but I'm the more handsome brother. Yeah, I know. You always say that, but, uh, but we're going to let the ladies judge. Eric, we're going to let the ladies judge when they see this, man. We're going to let, let them judge. I know, I know that's what Bridget said, your wife, you know, but... This is a sibling rivalry here. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to stay out of it. And, and that's the only opinion that matters. Right. Yeah, you know, Janet's going to say different, but, you know, on a serious matter, with the vaccines in place, like I said, now we got this wariness about people taking the vaccine. That's the, that's the impetus behind why you wrote the letter. Talk about the op-ed piece that you got the health professionals to write. Yes, well, uh, thank you. Thank you for having me on the show and, and for giving me the opportunity to, to address this important problem. So what, what, we've, um, what we anticipated actually was that there was gonna be some inequities in the distribution of the vaccine. And we've been trying to get on, stay on top of that and address the inequities. But one of the issues that we knew uh, was going to, be ha going to be a problem was this issue of vaccine hesitancy. Polls had been showing through much of uh, 2020 that African-Americans were distrustful of the vaccine and was concerned about potential long-term health implications of being vaccinated. And we anticipated there was going to be a problem. So we've been trying to work on messaging and educating the community so that they understand how the vaccine was produced and, and why it is safe and effective. You know, uh, Tom, if I can ask this, you know, we've one thing that the pandemic has done, it is pull the covers back on all inequities pretty much in our society, from healthcare, education, food insecurity, employment insecurity, and, and the like. And one thing that I saw in the medical community is that it pulled the covers back on the discrimination and the biases all, that always existed. You know, as black people, we've always said we're not treated uh, uh, the same as whites when we go into the hospital. Our doctors are not trusting us to tell us, uh, for, for us to tell them what's going on with us. Has that been taken into consideration when looking at not just the efficacy of this vaccine, but also the trust level that African-Americans have with doctors in general, and also medicine. You know, because again, we talk about the Tuskegee experiment. We talk about the uh, Mississippi Delta uh, uh, project with sterilized women, forced sterilization and, and, and the like. What type of conversations have there, have there been around that, those issues? 
Well, there certainly have been a lot of conversations. You know, we've been on this issue uh, for decades. Back in the 1980s, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, in 1985, published a report called the Secretary's Report on Black and Minority Health, uh, also referred to as the Heckler Report. And what the Heckler Report showed was a 13-volume report, and it showed chart after chart after chart documenting that we had massive disparities across every disease category, infectious disease, chronic diseases, injuries, accidents, you name it. We had a higher rate uh, for African-Americans and indigenous uh, populations as well as Hispanics. And so there's been there's been efforts um, to address that issue at least since that time. So I don't want to pretend that there hasn't been that. And over the last you know four decades or so, there's been a real uh, development of an infrastructure now within uh, public health nationally, within the government. Many foundations have really taken up this matter banner as its uh, as its primary um, focus area. Foundations such as Robert Johnson Foundation. And, um, and and in the academic public health world and medical world, you know, there are research centers and a lot of uh, scholars now that are focusing on this issue. So while I think it would be accurate to say that the racial disparities issue really wasn't getting much attention before the 1980s, I would say after the 80s, there's been a lot more attention to it. Doesn't mean we resolve the problem. Right. But there is now a lot more discussion about it and a lot more efforts to address that that's been happening. You know, what's what's interesting, you talk about racial disparities, even with the vaccines, there's been a disparity of getting the vaccine in communities, in black and brown communities. What's been the reaction to your to the op-ed? And has that had any positive effect and people been paying attention to that? Right. So before I talk about the op-ed, can I give get a little bit, I think, an impo- important background that I think is, is necessary for to understand sure, the question you asked? So... So as far as the the issue of there being a a disparity in the vaccine, I I want to, you you didn't mention this in the introduction, so I want to just just for your audience to know that in addition to being dean of the School of Public Health and Tropical Medicine at Tulane, I'm also the co-chair of the Louisiana Governor's Task Force on COVID-19 and Health Equity. So I'm I'm also working with the state and helping to, you know, develop policy around how we distribute this vaccine. In other words, you're on the front lines of this whole issue. You're right on the front line. Right. I guess you could say from that standpoint, Mm -hmm. I'm not on the front line in that I'm not seeing patients, but I'm on the front line in terms of policy making and trying to to help figure out how we get this vaccine distributed. Um, And so we, uh, the CDC recommended a process uh, for who gets vaccinated in what order. And right now, we are still in what CDC calls Tier 1B. Mm-hmm. In Tier 1A and B, we basically it was nursing home residents, nursing home staff, um, medical professionals on the front line, or healthcare professionals on the front line, people like that. Now we've included allied health as well, and other people that are, as you would refer to it, as on the front line. So it's, the vaccine is not yet available for everybody unless you are over age 65 or in one of those categories, you know? So, so when, so in Louisiana, uh, 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 African-Americans are 32% of the population. And the la- last data we have shows that there's 12% of the vaccines have gone to African-Americans in Louisiana. Then you can look at that comparison and say, wow, it's 32% of the population, but it's only 12% vaccinated. But that really is not the, tr- the, the correct comparison. It's not, 
to comp- you don't compare it back to the total population of the state. Right. You compare that back to the percentage of African Americans in those categories that are eligible. So what's what percentage now, do they represent in that category? Right. Exactly. No, right. That's a good good question. So now when I did a little a little digging to try to get some statistics on that, mm-hmm. it's somewhere around twenty three percent of the of the mm-hmm. state's population it, it, that are eligible are African American. So clearly Clearly, there's still a disparity. So I don't, I don't, I don't want to even begin to pretend that there isn't one. There is a problem here. But I'm saying the problem is not of the magnitude as it might uh, seem. And I do, I've seen it in the media a lot, that kind of comparison back to the full population, which is not really accurate. Now, having, if, I'm sorry. If I could, I mean, what what is the underlying reason, you know, for that disparity? I mean, obviously, we know where people live. We know where they go to get health care, right. whether it's a primary care physician or the emergency room. But in, in that population, it's most of the people are Medicare eligible or their own Medicare. So, you know, it, it's not hard to locate who they are <laughs> and, and where they go. I mean, so what's really the issue? Why aren't African-Americans getting the vaccine in that in that tier like they really should? Okay, so now it's I, I'm 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 trying to give quick answers, but it's not a quick answer to that question. Well, we got time. So, you got I, time. I, we got time. Yeah, <laughs> right. And, and I really and I really do want to explain it because I think what happens a lot when we get in the media is we don't have an opportunity to really explain things, and then we give these quick answers, and then people don't really get it. Right. So there are three reasons for the disparity in vaccinations to this point. Okay. So one reason is. There is, we simply don't have enough vaccine. We just don't have enough doses to, to meet the need right now. I mean, so we, we create these, these, mass, uh, mass, um, these mass vaccination events. We think we're gonna have, I don't know, 10,000 doses at a particular event. Uh, and then when the doses actually come, it's not as many as we thought. So we had planned for 10,000 people to come but now we only got enough to vaccinate 8,000 people. And so there's going to be 2,000 people that are going to be disappointed, upset, and that's going to fuel even more distrust, right? So that's the that's one issue. Right. Just, there just isn't enough vaccine. The second issue is, um, we, is that, you know, the country is dramatically racially segregated, right? And so we don't live in the same communities. And if you just go through the process, uh, a normal process of, just delivering the vaccine through through uh, organizations and facilities that you normally would use, hospitals, clinics, you know, uh, pharmacies, doc, uh, medical uh, uh, offices. These facilities are not distributed evenly throughout the country. So if we use that process, you can predict you're going to have inequities, right? Because they're just not in every community. There are medical deserts all over this country, and they are disproportionately black and brown communities. So in Louisiana, we actually did model that. So we actually, we, 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 we modeled out what are the communities that are, um, you know, there's a, there's a statistic that CDC creates called social vulnerability. For, it's measuring the, the vulnerability of a community based on its characteristics. So we mapped social vulnerability against doctor's offices, hospitals, and clinics. Then we made a map. And you could clearly see if we just follow it, that, that process of using the existing medical care infrastructure, there's going to be huge portions of the state right. that are not going to be covered. Right. So we, we saw that, we predicted that, and then we started to develop relationships with like supermarkets and other types of 
you know, churches, other types of organizations, so that we can try to expand, expand um, the, uh, the access. The, you know, yeah, access in that way. So if you're if you're modeling it out, if you're thinking ahead, and you're saying, okay, if we do things in the most simple, logical way, what's the outcome? Then you can see that. So now the next structural issue to getting it into some of these communities is that the Pfizer vaccine has to be kept at negative 70 degrees. The Moderna vaccine doesn't have to be kept at negative 70 degrees, but it has to be kept at uh, frozen until it's used. Once you thaw out the Pfizer vaccine, you've got six hours to get that vaccine to somebody's arm. So now imagine this. First of all, you're going to have to get that frozen vaccine out into the hinterlands, right, into some of the rural areas, which is already a challenge because communities, not every community even has a sub-70 degree freezer in the entire city, right? right? So, so you got to get it there. Once you've thawed it out, you got six hours. And, if, and, and, you know, the worst possible thing would be to waste vaccine when it's already in short supply. So what's the logistics around how you get that vaccine to that community and get it into somebody's arm before it expires? Very, very challenging, right? But now once you've gotten past those structural issues, not enough vaccine, right. facilities not located where they need to be located, logistical problems getting the vaccine to where you need it, now you've got this last issue, which is vaccine hesitancy where people are just mistrustful and not willing to accept the vaccine, even when it's offered to them. And that is a problem that, that we've been trying to contend with. So, you know, you, you basically outline a lot of hurdles that we have in ensuring that this vaccine gets out to where it needs to go. But you mentioned, I, I, I want us to talk about quickly the mistrust. So we talk about the mistrust of this vaccine, right? Now, We've never seen a vaccine develop this quickly. And I know, I know, you know, I paid attention to the research with Dr. Fauci and his team as they discussed how they've taken the research down to, uh, to this particular level to where they can isolate this particular spike uh, protein. They can isolate this part of, of, of the flu. Uh, 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 virus, and they could basically target uh, where the vaccine needs to go. But let's be honest here. You know, there's not been a test group for this vaccine. <laughs> so the people who are getting the vaccine, are they the test group for any side effects and the things that are going to happen, not just initially, but down the road? Uh, I don't know about that. The, the vaccines have been have been tested before they even are allowed to uh, be put out to the public. So, you know, that's, but that's, I mean, that's the, that's the scientific method and, and process. I mean, Tom, you could explain that, right? I mean, yeah, but Will, I mean, usually testing takes takes place over years. Uh, there were individuals that were given this test and the, they were monitored over months, not years. And so does that have an, does that play into the mind? Well, first of all, I know people are asking questions saying that, hey, you know, we haven't seen this thing tested long enough. No. Eric, I, yeah, Eric, I, I'm, I would love to answer this question. I've, I've been waiting to answer this question. Okay. Because I think that I think that this is, I think that this is the biggest issue with vaccine hes hesitancy right now. 
So in the past, vaccines would take more than 10 years yeah. to produce, right? This time we produced a vaccine in 10 months. Right. So how is that possible, right? And I think the fact that um, the previous administration, um, I think, did not communicate well enough on this issue, and this question is still out there. So well, now here's the past communication didn't communicate at all. So let's start from ground zero. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, but it was created during the previous administration, right? They had this op this program they called Operation Warp Speed. Yep which was a partnership with federal government and uh, pharmaceutical companies and universities to, um, to produce the vaccine, right? So first of all, calling it Operation Warp Speed was, a, was an unfortunate decision, right? Because calling it that focused on the speed that was that uh, in which it was being developed rather than focusing on the care okay. that was being taken, right? So they maybe should they should have called it operations fa fast, but but really really you know careful, you know, or something like something like that. But that was the first problem, and then they didn't explain to people why they were able to create a vaccine in five in ten years. So here's how it's possible to do it. First of all, there are new technologies that have been developed in just the last decade or so that didn't exist when we were battling polio and influenza and these other, other diseases. So just the, the ability to create vaccines faster just is, um, is much better now simply because we've got new technology that didn't previously exist that allow us to create these vaccines much more quickly. Okay. Second of all, you had teams all over the world working on the same problem at the same time. You never have teams in, I don't know, 20, 30 different countries multiple teams working on the same problem like this. So you've never had this kind of mobilization of medical scientists working on a vaccine at the same time. You also had a dramatic infusion of funds from the federal government that you usually don't have. So typically the way it works is I want to create a vaccine. I write a grant application to NIH. It takes a best case scenario. It takes nine months before that application leads to me having actual dollars I can use. And that's if I'm lucky enough to get funded on my first application. Right. 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 So that's right. like best case scenario. I'm a year in before I can even start the research on this vaccine. Then I do the research over the next three to five years. And then I've now I've learned what I've learned. Like, let's say we've created the vaccine. So now I'm ready, and this is like, and what I'm describing to you is the best case scenario. So now I'm ready to apply for, um, for FDA approval. I apply, I, I submit the application, which can take months to even write. You submit that application, and then it sits on somebody's desk for a, a month or two until they finally sign off and pass it on to the next uh, bureaucrat that it sits on their desk for a while, and then it passes on to the next... And then it finally goes through that entire process until it gets to the point where FDA is ready to say it's approved. Now, that was and what the, the example I just gave you was like a best case possible scenario. And we're already like practically 10 years in just on that scenario. This time, things were done. And then, and then once we've got the approval, now I've got to license this vaccine to a pharmaceutical company, which can take who knows how long to negotiate that license. And then they got to start manufacturing because they're not going to start putting the money into manufacturing until they've done all the tests. We've gone through the three different levels of, tr of trials, which I'm happy to describe them for you. And then so now, this is why it takes 10 years. If, right. if we go through that process, 
So what was done differently? First of all, you had new technology that sped up the process. Second of all, you had um, multiple teams and people would, and things were being done sequentially. So instead of waiting until step one was over before you started step two, they did them at the same time. They began manufacturing the vaccine before it had already been demonstrated that it worked, which is very risky, right? Because if it didn't work, they'd have to destroy all that vaccine and all of that money would have been wasted. Now, fortunately, it did work. So they you know, were able to move more quickly. So it's not that any corners were cut. The same process was used as it's always used. Things were done, ex was expedited. FDA didn't sit on their hands for, right. you know, months at a time at each step. As you can see, the um, uh, Johnson & Johnson uh, just applied for emergency use authorization last week, yeah. and they've already uh, going to be reviewed next week, right, two weeks, right? So we'll have Johnson & Johnson will have been approved, if it gets approved, in just two weeks after getting its application. Unprecedented. Normally, that would be probably more like two years. Yeah. So that's why it was done so quickly. And it's not because they cut corners, because they still went through the same trials. Yeah, and, one and, and, that's the, and that's the thing I want to point out is that cutting is a difference between cutting corners and being efficient. So now when you be efficient, which is what we're always calling for, the more efficiencies, because the process that you just outlined just shows there's a whole lot of inefficiency in that, and, uh, uh, a proposal, a test sitting on somebody's desk. So now we've gotten more efficient, use uh, technology. So now everybody wants to equate that with, with cutting corners. And it's not necessarily about cutting corners because the, uh, you know, the FDA, all of the other bodies wouldn't have done and wouldn't have done the approvals unless they had the, uh, the, the, the ability to legitimately do the approval, which takes us to another issue about the misinformation and how people use these scenarios, the distrust that already exists in the Black community as a reason to advance their agenda, which is to be anti-vax, you know, right. against vaccines altogether. And, I, you know, I wanted your take on that, Tom, with, you know, all of this misinformation and this anti-vax movement that really has its own agenda that in many ways is about selling products, is about moving people in other directions, and how that is having an effect on our community. But Will, before you go there, uh, Tom, I mean, basically communicating what you just communicated, I, I remember, you know, listening to that, uh, learning about that process, and I, I understand it. But I think the point that, every, that uh, a lot of people are looking at is that though it was developed with new technology, which allowed us to be more efficient as opposed to cutting corners, there haven't been any results as to the effect of this vaccine and to the side effects of the vaccine itself. Because usually we get we get tests and you see these various side effects and the like. So I think that's that's some of the fear and trepidation that a lot of people have as it relates to that. Well, that, that, even that's not really true. So we still the, the vaccine still went through all all phases. And every time a new drug is developed, there is, you don't hear about it in the media very much. And I think this is another part of the problem, that every step of what happened throughout this entire pandemic happened in the media. Mm. And so the, the way that scientists think, this is how we think. Okay, Eric Clavel does a study and he has a finding. And we say, oh, okay, that's what we now believe is true. 
Then Will Levice does another study and says, well, there's a little nuance here to what Eric found, and it's not exactly right. Then we say, oh, okay, we thought that was true. Now we know that's not true. Now we believe what Will said. And then Joe Smith comes along and does another study and says, no, 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 they were both wrong. This is really what it is because they didn't consider this other factor. And then we all go, oh, okay, this is not what we believe. Right. That's, the, that's the sausage making in, in developing scientific consensus. Scientific method, right. And, and that's how we're used to approaching it. And that's how we're used right. to seeing it. And so it's not a, it's, to us, it's not a shock that, oh, well, we thought this, and now there's this new great study that was really well done, and it demonstrates that, no, the we, there was what we thought isn't really right. And then we all just say, okay, well, somebody replicate that study, and once you've been able to show that this new study is really accurate, we now change our opinions. That doesn't normally happen in the media. So it's happening in scientific meetings. It's happening where we're having discussions. And it's a, it's a troubling process to see sausage being made. And right now, that's what's happening. The public is seeing the sausage made, yeah. and the public is not used to, okay, they said this one day, and now they're saying that the next day. And I'm like, well, that's the normal process. Right. And I can tell but you Right. And I can tell you, and that's why my reaction is what it is, because I can tell you that in, as a journalist, there are the public pundit journalists, and then there is the science and health journalists. The science and health journalists understand exactly what Tom just said. It's the pundit, CNN, Fox News, MSNBC, the people who want quick answers and don't understand the scientific method. And, and like he said earlier, They've only got 10 minutes to do this interview, and they're looking for a simple answer to bring to the public. But if you if you followed it and you follow the science journalists and the health journalists, they're saying exactly what Tom just said. But we don't often get that in the public media, which brings us to the vaccine issue, which the which the public journalists should really be dealing with head on and really investigating and saying, what is going on here with this anti-vax? And these quick answers and what is really these people's agenda when they're trying to get everybody to not engage vaccines at all. So, I mean, Tom, what is what is your take on that and how you yeah, all are having to battle that? Yeah, I think I think you're right. I think that the I think that, you know, you, you really need long form journalism. You need shows like this to really get into this issue because it's too complex. So even when I was on I was on MSNBC the other night, the other day. And I, I tried to squeeze in as much of what I just said as I could in that short segment, but it's hard to really lay it out and explain to people. And people really need to understand, once you explain how the vaccine was created so fast, people can understand it. There's nothing so complicated about it that they can't get it. But you don't have the, you don't get the time in the media usually to explain that to people so people could understand Oh, now I understand how he did it so fast. Now, I did want to make one more question, one response to, to Eric's question about the, the length of the trials. So once you get past phase three, which is what everyone here has been hearing about, phase three tests, phase three trials, um, there is a phase four, which doesn't get media attention. But phase four is that, okay, we've now done this phase three trials. Usually phase three trials are done on 25 thousand or more people. In this case, they were all done on 30,000 or more. All, all three of the vaccines were done on large groups of people, and that's typical. Now, that's, that's, that's standard. That's the way it's, it's supposed to be done. Now, if you have a, um, a, a side effect that has an extremely low rate, 
I don't know, one one tenth of one percent, you know, out of 30,000 people, you might not have a single person or let's say even less than let's say one half of, of, of that. You know, you, uh, you, you, won't, you may not have a single person that gets that side effect because it's so rare and even 30,000 is not enough people to pick up that, that side effect. But now once you deploy that vaccine on 330 million people, that extremely rare side effect could lead to two or three deaths which would have been such an infinitesimal percentage that it would never have come out in phase three. But then you see it in phase four. That has happened in the past with, with some other uh, drugs. Um, so you continue to monitor people. So the people that are in phase three are still being followed today, even though the vaccine is being used. And now there's phase four monitoring happening as it's been deployed and we're you know, monitoring people to see what's going on. And I can tell you so far, the deployment of this vaccine in terms of its risk profile is extremely good. I mean, you're talking about a handful of people that did have allergic reactions to it. I mean, we're talking like less than 10 people around the country that had allergic reactions. Um, and we've got uh, the last data I showed, so we were uh, nearing like 10%, no, what was it? Um, uh, four, 5% of the population that has received at least one dose. So I'd say this is an, a massively successful vaccine as far as a safety and efficacy profile. Now, Tom, I have, I have one last question because I know you got an exciting new project that we want to delve into. From your, from your standpoint, your viewpoint, in knowing the, creating the policy behind this, understanding the science, the supply issues that we have, what is your estimate? Do you believe that we'll have enough vaccines in order for the entire country to be vaccinated, should they choose to? And not just the enough vaccines, but then the supply, the logistic hurdles to actually get it into the arms and the systems of our people. Because ultimately, I think we all want to go back to normal, right? And I guess as a follow-up, is it possible that we can go back to normal? Uh, after the vaccines? I think there'll be a new normal. I think that we're going to live, wow. we're going to have to learn to coexist with COVID now, the way that we've had to learn to coexist with influenza. Uh, influenza killed um, millions and millions of people of years ago, but today we think of it as just a little thing. Oh, it's just, just the flu, right? Um, but it, it's a very deadly disease that kills tens of thousands of people, even still in this country every year. Um, we're going to have to learn to live with COVID. Um, I think it's going to be here. There are new strains of this uh, uh, virus that are now circulating in the country. Um, and just as it's the same thing with influenza, we have multiple strains of influenza that we have to account uh, for. And we're going to have a similar experience going forward. That, that will be the new normal. Um, now, when will we get to the point where everyone can be vaccinated? So we've, we have had, uh, just in the first weeks of the Biden administration, they've already ramped up production. You know, we just got reports just two days ago that they now believe they'll have 20, 200 million more doses than they thought they would be able to have. Uh, we do believe that it's possible that we could get through the, pop, through the entire U.S. population by uh, July of this year. Now, that's, now that's, that's, but that's, that's offering the vaccine to people, right? We can offer it to people, but people have to agree to accept it. And that is another challenge because we are finding 
um, that the uptake of the vaccine is not good enough for us to get to what we call herd immunity.